Well, sometimes when you look at the Bible, you're tempted to think that the Bible is comprised of two parts, and that, that those two parts, Old and New Testament, are to be kept separate, kept distinct, and that in many ways, for a lot of Christians, if we're not careful, we'll come away from our Bibles thinking that the first half of the Bible, or really the first 70% of the Bible, because the Old Testament is much larger than the New Testament, but you'll end up thinking that the Old Testament was for a different people. Perhaps you would think the Old Testament is for the Jews, and the New Testament is for Christians. But today, um, we want to talk about the fact that though we have two Testaments, there is only one gospel, and that that gospel combines both Testaments together to communicate one message concerning Christ and his kingdom. And so, once again, I'm grateful to be with you. My name is Emilio Ramos, of course, and I'm joined by our good friend Kevin Moore. Kevin, it's great to be with you again, brother. Welcome back to the program. Excited for this one. Thanks, Emilio. Always a joy to be with you. And uh, yeah, looking really forward to our episode here. And so... um yeah, you know, just as you said, um, there is such a disunity, I would say, within most churches that, again, they think the Old Testament is for Israel, and obviously the New Testament is for the church. And so um, when we're talking about two testaments, we're, we're talking about one gospel, we're talking about the unity of the Bible. And um, I mean, that is just vital. It, it yeah. is one book. It the Lord wrote it, and it is not divided up into two different, you could say, uh, sections in that way. Almost There's like a, two books, right? Yeah, exactly. There is a unifying theme throughout the Word of God, and I think that's really important amen. for for people to know. Yeah, amen. Well, you've been doing some traveling, and during your travels, you picked up a little you picked up a little sickness, and you're recovering, brother, and so <laughs> you're a champ. So I just want to acknowledge that because you're a champ for uh, for participating in this episode. So how, how are you? How are you feeling? Just for everyone to know, we're doing better. Uh, yeah. We when we went back out to California, my family and I, we ended up getting the flu. Haven't had that in such a long time, and so um, man, I just got rocked. So yeah. um, ended up obviously delaying our flight back out here and everything, but we're, we're slowly on the mend. And, um, so thankful for that and, uh, thankful to the Lord, you know, just that we can easily take health for granted. And so yeah. just good health and different things like that, um, obviously puts it into perspective that when you are sick, uh, just to be so thankful to the Lord for, for blessing us, you know, when we are healthy. Yeah. And you were traveling too. So you, you went through the whole FAA nightmare and, and <laughs> the flight cancellations and everything. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you underwent flight Armageddon. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. But in God's goodness and his providence, um, yeah, made it back for Christmas and was there on Christmas, uh, Christmas Day. So, so very, very thankful for that. Yeah, right on. Well, where do we start here, right, brother? You want to kick us off with some of these concepts that we've been talking about, uh, you and I, and why we decided to kind of tackle this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's important. Um, you know, obviously you have some some listeners that that know what you say the basic definitions or the concepts or really the overview when we're, or we're talking about the unifying theme of the Bible. But um, 
Yeah, I would, uh, I think for maybe those that don't know, if you could just give us some basic definitions from that when we talk really about the, uh, the dual estates of Christ um, and just why is that important when we talk about the unifying theme of the Word of God? Yeah, yeah, man. Kevin, this is one of those subjects that I come back to time and again. I mean, I just preached on this. I just taught on this and um, just did a Bible study on this. And the dual estates of Christ, when we talk about the dual estates of Christ, of course, we're thinking about Jesus in his suffering and in his exaltation. So Mm. sometimes that's been referred to as the two sessions of Christ, Christ coming in his earthly session and Christ being resurrected and ascending and being exalted to his heavenly session. And those two modes in the life of Christ and in the in the operations and the missions of the Son, as he comes in incarnate form to live a life as a human being and to undergo his passion, to undergo his time of suffering on this earth, and then to be resurrected, exalted to the right hand of God, those two estates, those two modes of the Son, really com- uh, really uh, bring together, bind together the Word of God and specifically, as we think about the Bible, uh, specifically thinking about the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, because when we ask the question of what is the gospel, I know we'll get into some of these critical passages, but you know, when we ask about the gospel, if you ask the typical Christian, what is the gospel? They might articulate to you the dual estates of Christ without really contemplating why that's so important. They might say, well, the gospel, it's about Jesus coming and dying on the cross, and he rose again, and if we believe in him, right, we will be saved, we'll have eternal life, right. we'll, we'll, we'll go to heaven, okay? And that's all true. That's just a simple, basic evangelical gospel. Uh, but when we think about these dual estates, I mean, we really are thinking about Jesus coming in his uh, earthly session for the purpose of not only suffering, both in his active and passive obedience, but also suffering on behalf of his people and as a representative of his people. Uh, and, and, and really, as he enters into his heavenly session, now we're thinking about Jesus being exalted to the right hand of God and entering, as it were, into a new mode of his life, uh, a higher mode of life in the heavenly realms. And that becomes so central to the gospel um, that when when the authors of Scripture, and particularly, so we think about the Apostle Paul, when he begins to define the gospel, as we'll see, it is the dual estates of Christ that come into view. Hmm. That's great. Are there some, uh, just for our listeners, what are some passages that you can uh, obviously point to um, that, uh, that show this and prove this? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, there's there's an interesting uh, pattern, actually, that makes it easy to memorize. If you notice all three of these scriptures that I'm going to give, and there are many, 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 many more, but these are three big ones. And I would begin with Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, specifically there, because that's where the Apostle Paul actually says, right, that the gospel of God is concerning his son. And then the next one would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And the last one that I like to turn or point people to is Hebrews chapter 1. And one more time, verses 1 through 4. 
So if you can remember one through four, one through four, one through four, <laughs> you know, then you remember, hey, those are the three passages for uh, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Hebrews chapter 1, and they're all 1 through 4, and they all basically teach the exact same thing. So um, those, to me, those are some of the critical passages. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind reading those, Emilio? I'd love to yeah. just hear that, and, and we could obviously dive down deeper and, and, and explain that a little bit more as, as you go through that. Sure. I mean, we could probably take each one of these and just talk through each one for a moment. But yeah, you know, in Romans chapter one, you know, after Paul, of course, introduces himself as a servant of Christ called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then regarding the gospel, verse two, it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And then in verse three, gives you the content of the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to talk about his apostleship. But there's something really amazing about this text. And it's, it's this juxtaposition of Christ coming, in a sense, Christ exhibited and set forth in two modes. First, he comes in the mode of David's son. He comes in the mode of the flesh. And there's two prepositional phrases here, according to the flesh, and then verse four, according to the spirit. Now, if you think about this passage and you look at church history, you go back through the history of interpretation. And when a lot of folks um, uh, that interpreted this passage early on in the early church say, let's say maybe the first four centuries of the church. Uh, most of the patristic fathers understood this to be a reference to Jesus' deity and his humanity. Now, uh, that theology is certainly right, right? Um, mm. <laughs> right? He, of course, Christ came as a man, but he was also fully God. Right. The problem is, is that that is really not what Paul is teaching here. Paul is not really stressing the son became a man in the flesh and, in a sense, was deity in the spirit. That's not what he is saying. <laughs> you get a clue with the word flesh, and the parallel to the word flesh would be the word power. And so there you have a very clear clue as to what Paul's trying to get at here. In the flesh, he came, we can say, not in power, but what's the opposite of power? Well, the opposite of power is weakness. Weakness, yeah. Yeah. And so it, and so it was Augustine, in the fourth century, it was Augustine who came the closest to identifying that this was talking about two modes of Christ, that one was talking about his humanity, and that's what he talked, what he emphasized, and the other one was talking about his mode of exaltation, glory, and honor. And so this has been developed, especially since the Reformation, and even since that, man, um, it was Gerhardus Voss in the Pauline <laughs> Eschatology, a book that he wrote, that really, really developed this idea of the dual estates of Christ representing two modes in the life of the eternal Son of God in which he came in weakness to fulfill his mission 
of redemption by suffering, and then the mode of power, and that being according to the spirit of holiness. And so the mode of power is amazing, uh, Kevin, because um, Jesus has now been advanced. Not that he's not human anymore. It's not that he's not a man anymore. And that's where the that's where the the distinction between uh, let's say humanity and deity really starts breaking down. Yeah, because of course when he was a when he was in the flesh on Earth, he was still fully God. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't right. cease to be God. Yep. in his humanity, and after the resurrection, he didn't cease to be man. Right. So it must be that Paul has something else in mind. And That's what's good. remarkable, and here's the thing that what, what we're focusing on here with the dual estates, Kevin, is this idea, right? Two testaments, one gospel. Yep. Now, where do we see the two testaments here in Romans? Well, we see the fact that in, chapter, in verse 2, the gospel of God is promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. <laughs> And so, of course, at that moment in time, the Apostle Paul is not thinking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Right. So, which is incredible. And so what he's saying is that in the prophets, in the Old Testament scriptures, again, it is these dual estates that are prophesied, that are, that are, that, that are contained therein. So that would be something of what is happening with the dual estates of Christ informing the one gospel of the two testaments. That's great. Yeah, thanks for for unpacking that and showing that. Um, you know, obviously, um, you know, we can look at First Corinthians fifteen. We can look at Hebrews chapter one as well. Um, yeah. Maybe just uh, you want to unpack another. Maybe just one more. Um, just pick yeah. which one you want to do there. Well, which think, one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think First uh, Corinthians fifteen is important also because. There, of course, we are told explicitly, right, that yeah. what all that what Paul is giving to the church is nothing other than the gospel. Again, he's saying in First Corinthians fifteen, if we begin, uh, if we begin in verse one, where he says, "Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which I received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For, and now he begins to expound the gospel, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and here's the intertestamental gospel again, in accordance with the scriptures. Mm. Very similar to what you find in Romans. Right. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day again in accordance with the scriptures. And so there again... The focus of the gospel, and this is amazing, uh, Kevin. I, you know, when I have preached this dual estates phenomenon, and these three verses that we're focusing on, these three passages that we're focusing on here, I've preached this numerous times, and I always come back to this idea that, uh, you know, when it says in accordance with the scriptures, right? Yeah. That we, yeah, that we're we're looking at the original intent of the Bible, right? and that as we go back to the Old Testament scriptures, we're not, we're not forcing something into the Old Testament. The apostles are not saying 
that we are to take the life of Jesus and try to make it fit into the Old Testament. <laughs> it's the complete opposite way around. Yeah. It's that the Old Testament is prepared us. It has conditioned us to receive this dual estates phenomenon of the life of Christ, and that this is the gospel. And what's really phenomenal is that if you think about the gospel, Kevin, notice that up to this point in the exposition of both of these verses, the gospel doesn't have anything to do with anything to do with us. Right. We're not in the picture yet. <laughs> Right? We're not we're not yet he's not yet talking about forgiveness of sins and making atonement and saving a people and and all of this, right? And for us to be forgiven and to be redeemed of our sins. There's none of that yet. <laughs> because first and foremost, the gospel is an accomplishment. It is something Christ did. It is something that he accomplished. But, you know, today in our man-centered kind of evangelical atmosphere in which we live, you go talking about the gospel for too long without mentioning personal benefits yep. and therapeutic sort of, yeah. you know, applications and ministry to our own emotions and circumstances, and you'll lose people. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't yeah, you agree with that? Absolutely, I would. I mean, you see that throughout the church. It's like... Um, We've gotten away from it too. It's uh, how do I live this better life? You know, what I say, the eleventh commandment is just be nice. You know, and there's always <sighs> just something in terms of, hey, how can I not uh, how the gospel transforms me from the inside out? But give me some cliff notes on you know how I can do something better. You know, and, and again, that's what you hear a lot of from many churches today. But I really I want to come back to like uh, just what you talked about in terms of of just the unifying theme from the Old Testament and the New Testament. As you were talking, was I the first thing that pops in my mind is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I mean, we see right there and the gospel is promised all the way in Genesis 3. And so you're absolutely right on that. Um, yeah. Hey, I was kind of looking at and I was thinking about Hebrews 1. I know I said, hey, let's pick just one thing, but I, but I think this yeah, is so like important. You got to hit Hebrews 1. You got to. I mean, <laughs> here it is. Verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yeah. And and this is the this is the exact um, this is the exact nature of the work of Christ that the disciples could not grasp. Remember, yeah. And so a pa- uh, yeah. So a passage like Luke twenty four uh, verses twenty six and twenty seven, verse forty four, forty five, for example reiterate this idea that the disciples were disillusioned, they lost heart, they lost hope, because, as Jesus went on to tell them in Luke uh, 24, I think it's verse 26, right, he went on to explain to them that 25, 26, 27, he went on to explain to them that they failed to believe and What's amazing, Kevin, is what Jesus says. He says, 
all that the prophets have spoken. <laughs> yep, beginning with Moses it's amazing. and yeah, all and, the prophets. And, right, it's, and it's amazing because he, he said, all the prophets have spoken of this, and what, what is it that they've failed to grasp in the prophets? It's exactly what Hebrews just told us. Jesus put it like this, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer? There's his earthly session right there, the state of humility. He had to suffer these things, and we could almost say, and then enter into his glory. Hmm. And when you mentioned Genesis chapter 3, that reminds us of the Adamic typology between Christ and Adam, and how that just as Adam was put into a probationary period of time, wherein upon his perfect, personal, exact, entire obedience to the law of God, covenant of works, he would have then done what Christ did in a sense, and would have been exalted, and he would have been asc- and he would have ascended, and just like Christ, according to the spirit of holiness, Adam, according to the spirit of holiness, would have been exalted <laughs> to the heavenly realms to glory. You know, a lot of people, I think, they fail to understand that even though Eden, the Garden of Eden, was perfect, was sinless. It was paradise, but it was not heaven. Yeah. And people, I think sometimes people fail to grasp that, that something greater lied before Adam. Something greater was there for his attainment. And of course, now we know if we really just kind of go into the theology of protology, um, protology just means the study of first things, Genesis Mm -hmm. 1, 2, and 3, we understand that that heavenly realm is symbolized by the Sabbath, and that the Sabbath reign of God is something that lies ahead of Adam, something he doesn't have. Right. Um, even though he labors not in toil or in vain, right, in a, sinf- in a sinful world or in a cursed world, as we do now, right. but still he was in a state of work. And so a state of rest remained for him. And man, there's so much here, brother, because... Yeah, let me ask you a question. It's like, you know, we're talking about protology. We're talking about, you know, obviously the first thing is there. And, but how does, how does protology, how does that inform your interpretation of the dual estates of Christ as, as we're talking about? You know, in one sense, we, as many people have pointed out in, in teaching protology, that at the very beginning, right, protology is immediately putting us in contact with eschatology. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not really eschatology in terms of the kind of eschatology we like to fight about, right? But, but, but something much more fundamental, and that is that it has always been, the biblical eschatology, Kevin, has always been two steps. It has always been from this age to the age to come, mm-hmm. from this realm to the next realm. right. Uh, to use the language of Meredith Klein, from this register to the upper register. Register. Yeah, and so the dual estates of Christ speak of Christ in that dual register sort of operation, Mm -hmm. right? Where he is in this age, 
but then he is exalted representing the emergence of the age to come. And so that's, you know, that's what was set out before Adam is that he would have gone from this age to the age to come. And so now too, for us as well, what does protology teach us? It teaches us that right now we're in that same two-step program where we're in this age. We're in this present evil age. We're in a state, if you would, we're in a state of suffering and humility, Mm -hmm. just like Christ, Right. right? And that just like Christ, pending our resurrection or the parousia, the second coming of Christ, we were, we're going to go to the next step, even as Christ did. We mm. are going to enter that Sabbath rest. We are going to ascend the hill of the Lord. We will sit on his glorious throne so that the dual estates of Christ become something of a paradigm for every believer. It's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for thanks for unpacking that. And I and you know what? As we talked about, even in Genesis three fifteen, talking about protology. But um, could you give us a um, man? I'd love to hear just where we see more of the dual estates in the Old Testament. Uh, could you give us some scriptures, some references where we see that as well? <clears throat> yeah, um, man, you can see the dual estates of Christ in so many different ways. I think typologically. Uh-huh. Uh, typo- typologically, you see that very thing, and here is where, um, I guess, in a redemptive historical fashion, which means as we, as we see the development of redemptive history and the redemptive interest, the redemptive program of God, right, as it is developed over time and we see the progression of revelation, and we come to the fuller revelation of God, and then we understand how we should read the Old Testament to look for these dual estates. So basically so, what you're saying is the dual estates impacts your hermeneutics. Oh, completely, <laughs> completely. Um, and, I mean, we talk about Hebrews, right? Yeah. And so you look at the book of Hebrews, and so the book of Hebrews is then going to become essential for now interpreting the Old Testament And so we ask, well, how do we find the dual estates of Christ in the Old Testament? And what I would say is, it's not just in a select, you know, like a little, a little bunch of passages. Like, there's a few texts, you know. Yeah. And we might look at Isaiah 53. We might look at Psalm 16. We might look at um, uh, Psalm 110. We might look at these different kind of passages in the Old Testament to maybe say, okay, here are a few passages that refer to the same basic paradigm of suffering and being exalted, right? Right. But in fact, you see it much more when you understand that according to Hebrews, in all of the types and shadows and sacrifices <laughs> of the Old Testament, Christ is found there in this typological form. If not typologically, then certainly symbolically. If not symbolically, then certainly redemptive historically. In other words... Right. Kevin, when we talk about redemptive historical hermeneutics, for example, part of all of that, Kevin, is that we're looking at the events of the Bible and that the events of the Bible themselves are theology. And so you look at one of the most uh, monumental events of the Old Testament, namely the Exodus. Right. And when you look at the Exodus, especially in light of the book of Hebrews and other places— also for Second Peter, then you do understand that what the book of Exodus is representing is three movements 
uh, redemption out of bondage, right? I recently right. heard this uh, articulated by uh, Lane Tipton was talking about this because they were on the Reform Forum, they were talking about Voss. Okay. And they were talking about how in the Exodus, um, we're looking at redemption out of bondage, and then we enter into this wilderness and then Canaan. So we, we, we go, once God redeemed his people out of bondage, where did they go? They went into the wilderness. Right. Awaiting the arrival of the promised land. So when you look at the book of Hebrews, we have entered into the same basic eschatological program as the children of Israel. And that same basic eschatological program is to follow in the very footsteps of Christ, even as he underwent his wilderness experience, only to enter into the promised paradise of God. Remember what he told the thief on the cross? Right. Today you Today will be, you with, will be me with, with me where? In paradise. <laughs> in, in paradise. paradise. And so it's amazing you how you see, see the dual estates and how it really impacts the overall storyline of Scripture. And again, it comes back to the point. It's, it's, it's one book. It's not separated into two different. And, and you see that just from, like you said, from Hebrews, you see that in Exodus, you see the unifying theme of the Word of God. Yeah, you, no, absolutely. I mean, you have... Uh, you know, you, you have in the book of Hebrews, you know, you have in Hebrews 11, you have a reference to the, res, listen to this now, you have a reference to the resurrection of Isaac. And people miss this whole connection between Abraham and Isaac and what happened there. But we know that the episode between Abraham and Isaac was a resurrection event. Um, maybe to get a little bit controversial and show my cards a little bit on kind <laughs> of a, well, no, and, and kind of a controversial interpretation. And that is, you know, when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. Uh-huh. What day is Christ talking about? Well, most people will tell you, Oh, that's when Jesus came in the form of a Christophany, appeared as the angel of the Lord, and went into the tents of Abraham. Because he saw Christ in this theophany form. Right. I actually take a different interpretation. I think it has more to do with this passage in Hebrews 11, that he saw the day of Christ's resurrection, and that mm. he rejoiced because if there was one day in Abraham's life Kevin, that Abraham rejoiced, it was the day that he received his son back, as it were, from the dead. Yeah, absolutely. Genesis 22, man. You read that passage, right. is yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 and following, we are told, with no, under no, no mistake here, we are told that he received Abraham, or he received Isaac back as a type, which is incredible. He received him back as a symbol, as a figure of what he was talking about, mm -hmm. and that is the resurrection from the dead. Incredible. Right. 
And so right there, you see the same thing. The dual estates of Christ represented in the episode of Abraham and Isaac as Isaac lays down his life, enters into his is a state of humility, suffering, passion, and is figurative, figuratively resurrected from the dead. And it, it's just amazing. And so those kinds of instances throughout the Word of God is where you'll find repeated references to these dual estates. You know, it happens on an individual level. It happens on a corporate level. Israel represents Christ at times in these dual estates, right? As the suffering servant of Isaiah, for example. There is corporate Israel involved in that, but they represent ultimately messianic Israel, Christ himself. So, uh, yeah, man, I mean, there's so many different places you can go with that. You know, when we talk about that, and then obviously, you know, for our listeners too, is, uh, you know, obviously you talk about the humiliation, the exaltation of Christ as well. We see that in the Old Testament. Obviously, we see it in the New Testament as well. It impacts our hermeneutics. Uh, it impacts the theology as whole as a whole. But um, maybe just the question here is, is, what are some practical ways this affects your interpretation of Scripture? Well, I think I think it it does bring people to the conclusion that, like Edmund Clowney was famous for saying, and I think he really coined this idea, and that is that all of Scripture is Christian Scripture, hmm. and that Christians don't need to wait for the New Testament <laughs> to begin to talk about their religion. <laughs> uh, uh, you know that. <laughs> From That's Genesis. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, we start in <laughs> you know. Genesis 315. We, you see that. Yes, it yeah. is not, hey, we have to wait till the New Testament. Obviously, you see. I mean, you see in, um, you know, Genesis 12, Galatians 3 tells us, you know, obviously um, who the offspring was, you know. You go yeah. to Genesis 22, Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah. I mean, you just see throughout scripture as well that that, yeah. that is really good. It's just because again, I think Amazing. in the American church today, what ends up happening is people have that divide. Oh, that's the Old Testament, right? What's the right. Uh, what was the the heretical statement from Andy Stanley? We need to unhitch from the Old Testament, you know. And, and the reality <laughs> yeah. is that's absolutely uh, ridiculous. You know, ridiculous. you see Christ, you see Him promised throughout Scripture. I mean, you think of even going to Exodus twelve, the Passover lamb, you know? Um, I mean, we could just go through. We could go to Leviticus 16. We could go Dave Tome. We could go throughout, you know? And all of that, brother, all of that is communicating to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right. And and, um, it, it just tells us that everywhere we go in the Bible, we are reading relevant material that affects our religion, our spirituality, our theology, and our understanding of the person and work of Christ, what he did on our behalf. And we're, we're, we're given such a, I guess in a practical way, we have, we, we're being given such a bigger, bigger and larger vision yeah. of the gospel and uh, the faith to which we belong. You know, you mentioned, he, you mentioned Galatians and the sea, the offspring, right? But the, the whole burden there in Galatians 3 and 4 is to show us, in fact, that we are not second-class citizens as Gentiles, but that Abraham, by faith, we are his offspring. We are right. his children. Uh, right. Romans chapter 4, 
he has become the father of us all. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's just, it's, it's awesome. And so you think about a passage like 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is encouraging the church and speaking about this common salvation that we have with all the Old Testament saints, you know, and we have, there's one salvation, and that's something that hit me a long time ago. In every aspect of theology, like in the entire Bible, there is only one doctrine of God. There's only one eschatology that the Bible is teaching. There's only one soteriology. There's only one doctrine of of salvation. Um, It's not Arminianism in the old, Pelagianism in the old, and Calvinism in the new, you know, that kind of stuff. There's only one unified, organic faith. Um, Like Jude says, there's just one, you know, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's it. I love that you reference. I love that you reference First Peter one. I mean, beginning in verse ten, it says, "Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories." There's the dual states again. Yep. Right. Absolutely. Succinctly. And where did Peter get this? If you'd read any commentary on Peter, they're going to show you that Peter's dependence here is on Luke 24. So he got this idea directly from Jesus and the sayings of Christ. So it's it's really important. I mean, uh, the dual estates of Christ on more... You asked for practical examples of like, how does this impact you? You know, what about our spirituality? You know, what, what about our capacity to interpret our present experience as Christians. What about the idea that presently, like Jesus, right, we are not yet in the state of exaltation. We are not yet, as Paul told the Corinthians. He, remember, he had, to, he had to remind the Corinthians. He had to kind of he, he smack them down a little bit. Right. <laughs> because he had to remind them, guys, you're not reigning yet. You're not ruling. You're not on thrones yet relax. Right. And so whatever we make out of the language in scripture that emphasizes union with Christ where it says, you know, that we have been raised with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This is all positional language of union with Christ, but at the geophysical level, we're, we're not exalted yet. We're not the church triumphant. Right. We 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 haven't ascended into our glory yet. And so this helps us to understand what Paul is talking about in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, for example, verse 24 and following, where he says, you know, I do my part to fill up the measure of sufferings that lack in Christ, which is a crazy statement, you know? But he knew that in his life and ours, uh, notice he talks about he did his part. (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're all gonna do our part yeah, exactly <laughs> we're, we're all gonna suffer our portion in our identity with christ so it reminds us guys you know we don't get the crown before the cross uh we don't get the exaltation before the humiliation the servant is not greater than his master and so then that idea right there that is not just a cool, you know, uh, you know, 
pithy statement that Jesus made. <laughs> it binds that, all that, scripture together. It binds it all together. It binds it all together, and it's a paradigm for the believer's life yep. in total, in total. Um, and I hate to, you know, I hate to bring up, because I feel like I'm constantly needing to qualify this, but this is part of the problem with post-millennial ethics, mm. is that if you're not careful as a post-millennialist, you can imagine a time that we're going to enter into where these categories, in a sense, will no longer apply. Because you believe that before Jesus returns, we're going to enter into some sort of golden era, golden right. age, a new era, an exalted era, an era of prosperity, you know, what Bonson used to talk about, a time in which sin will be relegated to neg- negligible proportions, right? That kind of thinking to me is counterproductive, and honestly, I think most Christians would just basically say the clear, basic reading of the Bible, it's counterintuitive. Right. It does it just doesn't feel Christian when you read the Bible that we're some somehow gonna participate in some exalt to its you know, and enter into some exalted generation. Right, some golden age. Some yeah. golden age before Jesus returns. Right. It's just not in keeping with the pilgrim theology of the Bible. So so would you say, um, you know, we talked about, obviously you talked about Reformed theology, like in particular, um, how does that un- inform our understanding, you know, at this point? Like when we talk about Reformed theology again, uh, how, does it, how does it inform our understanding? <laughs> and I know you, you dove down a little bit into it, but could you uh, talk a little bit more about that? I think I was. There we go. Can you hear me now? Yeah, can hear you. Okay, good. sorry, I was muted. Sorry, guys, no, I was muted. Good. Let me back up. Let me back up to answer the question that Kevin asked because I think it's so important about what is Reformed theology, and 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 well, the question you asked, Kevin, was how does this understanding of the dual estates of Christ, how does this impact your Reformed theology? Right. And I would say that it impacts it in the way that it informs the big covenantal structure of the Bible particularly as we think about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Grace. Yeah, because we're, we're, everything that happens in the Bible is contributing to the ultimate picture. I, I mean, I'm trying to put it in simplest terms. The reason I chose the name Christ and Kingdom is because at the deepest level, the Bible is about Christ and Kingdom. <laughs> yes, Amen. And how will we achieve the eschatological kingdom of God? And now, where do we situate the dual estates of Christ? We situate the dual estates of Christ as themselves, not ultimate, but as themselves subordinate 
to the deeper covenantal structure of the Bible. As we think about Christ coming in his earthly session in order to fulfill the demands of the covenant of works. Right. And we think about his heavenly session, right, as the reward and the benefits and the fruits and the fruition of the covenant of grace, as his ability now to dispense as our mediator the grace, grace through faith, and the redemption of his people. And so I think it just, we have to be always so careful that no doctrine of the Bible, it discombobulated from right. the bigger reformed, uh, you know, uh, sort of reformed uh, understanding of theology. Um, and it's all working towards Christ and his kingdom, the consummation of that kingdom. I was just talking to um, some friends about this in a home Bible study. I was talking about the fact that when you look at Revelation 21 and 22, and you understand this is the program. Revelation 21 and 22, guess what? Dear friends, that's not just the way things worked out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's not just that it happened to be that God made something beautiful out of something ugly, and wouldn't you know, God pulled it off in the end, and he, and he actually made something out of nothing. No. Um, to understand, and I know you agree with this, Kevin, that this is all part of God's eternal decree Absolutely. to consummate a kingdom through his son in the redemption of his people. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's awesome. So I know we're uh, we're kind of pressing up against time here, but uh, yeah. for our listeners, uh, what are some helpful resources on, on this issue, this precise issue? Uh, we talk about the dual states of Christ. Somebody wants to dive in um, even deeper. Um, they get done listening to this. Um, yeah, if you could share with uh, with the listeners, what are what are some helpful resources um, that maybe you've even found personally, and then maybe you you'd recommend for them as well? Oh boy. Um, uh, I, I would say probably get yourself a good commentary on the book of Hebrews, <laughs> uh, just to be really, really biblical. Um, I don't know, maybe Peter O'Brien, if you can find it, cause I know it's been recalled, but also Philippi Hughes, uh, on Hebrews. It's just that the book of Hebrews is so seminal. I mean, the book of Hebrews is really so important to this stuff, right? Uh, but you know, the other the other big one, and 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 the and and, and the fact that it's difficult it makes it hard for people to read. But the the Pauline eschatology by Voss is going to be the big one. And uh, I got that on and, my nightstand, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. And you know, and the others are going to be kind of like you'll find pieces and you'll find aspects of the importance of the dual estates of Christ in different covenant theologies and things like that. But I think the, I think that would be the best way uh, for people to understand those things is to really get a grasp on the book of Hebrews, read Gerhardus Voss, the Pauline eschatology. Um, and, and definitely you got to read Edmund Clowney. You have to mm-hmm. read preaching Christ from all of scripture and you need to read the unfolding mystery by Edmund Clowney. Um, those are just some places to start. Thankfully, uh, Lane Tipton, if you want something kind of current, 
Lane Tipton just wrote a marvelous little book, Foundations of Covenant Theology. Right. Um, that kind of intersect with a lot of what we're talking about here. And, um, and you get that on Reform Forum. You can go there and yeah, order you can that. get that at the yeah. Reform Forum. I don't. I, hopefully, yeah. it's still on Amazon too. But there you go. I mean, those those would be some of the resources right there. That's great. Yeah, I know. Uh, obviously, for our listeners, you know, hearing this uh, this podcast and wanting to dive deeper, so I know that's going to be really, really helpful for them for sure. So, Emilio, Amen. always a joy, always a pleasure. Um, man, love it. So, thank you again for Amen. having me on. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, it's great. It's a great time, man. And just for everybody out there, thanks for listening. Make sure to uh, share share the podcast. We'll see you guys next time on Christ and Kingdom. God bless.